I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, facing death without God, Chaplain Devin Moss on providing spiritual care to an atheist inmate on death row. I was super nervous and insecure about praying because it felt inauthentic to what I believed in. But when you use it to just invoke attention to an intention, I think it's quite a powerful tool. And later, moments that are stuck in time, the final hours and minutes before an execution. That Wednesday is when he would get his last meal. And all we really talked about was how much he was looking forward to this big bucket of dark original recipe Kentucky Fried Chicken. And instead of giving him what he had asked for, they gave him like a 10-piece chicken strip. Spiritual guidance for non-believers. One chaplain's year-long journey counseling an inmate sentenced to death. That's all coming up on Life Examined. At times of crisis, illness, and despair, our faith in God comes clearly into focus. As we've talked so often on this show, a strong belief in the power of prayer can console us. But what about those who don't believe in God and thoroughly reject the teachings in ancient books and scriptures? How do they navigate the injustices and cruelties of the world? And to whom do they pray when they need to be heard? For Chaplain Devin Moss, wrestling with these concepts is part of his day-to-day work. Although Moss doesn't believe in God, he acknowledges something spiritual in all of us and in the goodness of mankind, often in the face of compelling evidence to the contrary. Most recently, however, Chaplain Devin's skills in existential debate were put to their toughest test in his year-long bond with Philip Hancock. Hancock, convicted and sentenced to death for a double murder, was sitting in death row at the Big Mac State Penitentiary in McAllister, Oklahoma. Hancock, as it turned out, was also an atheist, and Devin Moss offered to stand by Hancock in the year leading up to enduring his execution in the hopes of providing some kind of meaning, comfort, and peace. Although the clemency for Philip Hancock was ultimately denied and he was executed by the state, Chaplain Devon's experience was undeniably life-changing, and perhaps in some way life-affirming. Their exchanges up and through execution were also chronicled in the New York Times. Devin Moss, welcome to Life Examined. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, I loved when I was reading about you that you you had a, a joke that when you came out of your mother's womb, <laughs> you, you weren't crying, wah, wah. You were crying, why, why? Why, <laughs> why am I here? What's this all about? Yeah. But, but I think it's a sentiment that some of us share, including myself. But I, I'd love for you to start there. It seems like kind of uh, sitting with these big fundamental questions was almost genetically programmed into who you are. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because it it seems that it may skip a generation. Like, I I don't know, because uh, I felt different than the rest of my family in in the sense that I was pondering these existential crises that showed up in many forms as as I grew up. But yeah, just questioned everything. And I don't know if it's just a little bit of being skeptical or just being having my curiosity cup runneth over, but I was just always wondering, um, one, like, why do we do the things that we do? And then, yeah. And then what is the meaning of it all? Yeah. Did you grow up in a, in a house of, of Christian faith or what, like, what would you say were the ideas you were being exposed to as a young person? 
Yeah, very, very Christian. So I was, I was born in a town called Weezer, Idaho. Hmm. Uh, you might be familiar with the, the famous Weezer Fiddle Festival, but very Christian. Grandparents were, were Lutheran on both sides of the family. And then when I turned five, we went to an Assemblies of God, so evangelical fire and brimstone, speaking in tongues type of church, which was a bit of a, a culture shock. And although our values as a family never changed with that, I think how we were literally schooled changed. And I think fear became the guiding principle other than benevolence. Hmm. Of course, you would go on to live so much life in between that moment and who you are now. But it's interesting because one thing I know about you is that you really believe in humanism, which is a concept we can we can come back to. But um, talk about kind of your transformation into becoming a chaplain, and even describe what what a chaplain is, because. I still feel that is very cloaked in religious terms or, or thoughts or, or symbols. So kind of bring us up to that, that point, if you could explain a little bit about what, what it is. Yeah. So I, maybe I'll take a, try to make a, the story short as possible to, to get to that. But so even though I, you know, Christianity in its form that was presented to me did not settle with what I was looking for, I did have an inherent sense of spirituality hmm. Um, which I again is is akin to to my curiosity. It felt like there was something more, and and you know your audience obviously can't see me right now, but I'm sort of waving above my solar plex right now. Right there's there's something there in the center of us that I that I think is spirit. Now I don't think it's it's transcendent spirit, but I think it's we call it consciousness or or something else mm. that that I always was looking to be filled in some way or that there's a scratch that needed to be itched. And so that that led me to continue to try. So I was Catholic for a while and I tried Southern Baptist for a while, always sort of looking to fill this, you know, God-sized hole in my heart that that never was ended up being filled um, in my early adulthood. And then I just claimed agnostic and gave up the gave up the search, right? Yeah. And it wasn't until I, I, I started this podcast, The Adventures of Memento Mori, that I, would tr I was exploring the meaning of life through the lens of impermanence, through the lens, the lens of, of our death, that this spiritual feeling was, was coming back. And, and I was doing an interview with a Zen Buddhist master who happened to be a chaplain. And at the end of our interview, she was like, hey, you would make a good chaplain. Mm. And as you just pointed out, I said, well, I can't because I am not a Christian and I don't believe in God, thinking that those were the two requirements of a chaplain, which, you know, which up until fairly recently they were. So mm. chaplain is, is a religious clergy person that is specifically in a secular institution, such as, a, you know, hospitals and prisons and fire departments and police departments and colleges to be the the religious or spiritual representation for that group that traditionally were away from their home church mm -hmm. so it was their 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 clergy by proxy yeah but over time 
you know, I think then particularly in hospital settings, the need for a wide breadth of spiritual advisors or spiritual care uh, takers expanded. And, and so that what happened is then, you know, Buddhists were allowed to be chaplains and I'm, and I'm talking specifically America here. I, I think things look a little bit different, um, in Europe and, and elsewhere, but, um, Buddhists were allowed and then, you know, Muslims were allowed and Hindus were allowed and, and, Eventually, up until you know a decade or two ago, even humanists were allowed to be uh, come chaplains. And so, what what a chaplain does is taking the hospital setting, for example, right? So the 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 doctors, the medical doctors, obviously take care of the body. The therapists obviously take care of, of the psyche. But there is that still that spirit that I described um, that was needing some type of support and care, particularly when. People are in acute moments of crisis, which usually in, in hospitals or prisons, that is, that is what happens. Those are the, the care seekers. And so the job of a chaplain, how it may be different, particularly uh, compared to a therapist, is we help the, the patient or the incarcerated or whomever, the student, to make sense of the world, particularly make, make sense of their suffering, through the context of theology, mythology, and, and symbolism. Mm -hmm. And so we all try, whether, whether we are a faith of any type or not, being thinking, imaginative creatures, we make sense of the world around us through these mythologies. And so what a chaplain does is, is help to contextualize someone's pain um, through what they, they hold to be sacred. Can you describe maybe some of your guiding philosophies or thoughts? I, I used the word humanism earlier because you've used it, and I find that to be a, a really kind of beautiful and insightful line of thinking. But, but you know, clearly you're in there to help others, but you have thoughts yourself about what a spiritual practice is, what, what truth is, uh, what mystery is. Uh, I know it's a big question, but how do, you, how do you put words to it when I ask you that? I mean that would I mean that's the that's the journey right is is finding that answer because as a humanist chaplain I was incredibly insecure about what that meant um mm -hmm. when I would walk into particularly I did my residency at Bellevue Hospital here in New York and so also learned by fire and this was during the the pandemic it took a while to actually to ground what I what I really believed in, and and I I think a story that may help articulate articulate what this means for me was so I just started at Bellevue, and in my cohort of CPE and CPE is our clinical pastoral education, and and this is our residency, and in my cohort there was a there was a Carmelite monk, and there was. Uh, a Baptist, and there was a, a Nazarene, and there was a Catholic, uh, there was a, a Muslim, and, and my supervisor was a rabbi. And so here I am, um, one without a book, essentially, one without, mm. without a history, and, and oftentimes one without, a, with, without garb. And so I was super nervous to go into people's room just because... Um, I just didn't have all of that. And that and that was, it seemed like what chaplains do. 
But what I what I soon learned, um, particularly in in the case of this one patient that I had, who was in the the forensic unit, and the forensic unit at Bellevue Hospital is where the uh, incarcerated from Rikers would come over to get medical attention. And um, I went up there and I, I was kind of avoiding going up there because I was, you know, I was nervous and uh, finally did. And, and if, if you don't get, they don't call you directly. You essentially just have to, you know, to do your rounds and go to door, door to door and, and check. So I went to this one door, um, knocked on the door, kind of took a couple steps in and, and, you know, I had this, this uh, unevolved, sales pitch when I would walk into the room, I'd be like, hi, my name is, my name is Chaplain Devin. Uh, may I offer you a, a meditation, a dad joke or a prayer? And I intentionally, <laughs> and I, I intentionally uh -huh. left prayer at the end because I was hoping that would be the, the least attractive choice out of, uh, out of the three and was really indexing on my repertoire of, of dad jokes at the time. Um, because when you're nervous, right? I'm I'm the type of person that go for the go for the laugh mm -hmm. to, to sort of smooth things over. But this patient immediately uh, says, "Like, yeah, you can pray for my hemorrhoids." <laughs> and right, and uh -huh. and I started laughing because one, his timing was amazing, and so right. I, I thought it was a joke until I after I laugh. I look at him and I can see that he's not laughing and that he was quite serious. Mm. Um, and then he, he went on to tell me that, that the medical staff at Rikers had just refused to treat his hemorrhoids. And he'd been asking for months and months and they just ignored this request. And so to get their attention, he swallowed razor blades. Wow. And so that's why he was at Bellevue. Um, and, and then following that up he said but it probably doesn't even matter if you pray for me because god doesn't listen to me anyway um and i was sort of struck again had no idea what to do because um i wasn't a christian and and nor i i knew enough to to, to not tell him that he was wrong that god did love him i knew i knew enough to not get into a a religious debate and i also knew that that what i believed in religiously didn't matter any either hmm. like i wasn't going to say like well it doesn't matter if god loves you or not because it god's not real um that's certainly not appropriate and so you i i understood that i just i listened to the the patient and so I went for it and I prayed for the hemorrhoids. Um, I, I invoked the spirit of the divine that connects us all. That felt real to me um, and not uh, inauthentic to, to what I believed in. And hopefully this patient would find connection to it as well. And then, yeah, we paid, prayed for his hemorrhoids and then mm. we prayed for his girlfriend and then we prayed for his brother and then we just wrestled together with doubt um which is which is pretty powerful and the only thing that i that i needed to believe in was uh was his humanity right he was 
he was telling me that no one had ever listened to him, be it the medical staff at Rikers or be it throughout his childhood or, or be it the, the God of his family's religion. He didn't feel heard. And so, so what, the best thing that I could do was just to, was to hear him mm. um, and, and do what he, what he asked of me. And so I guess that's, that's a story that I used to just to kind of describe what spiritual care is to me. It's, it's listening to the patient's story and how they contextualize their, their suffering. And, you know, I'm not necessarily there to, to solve anything or to analyze anything, um, just to, to be there to, to support and, and, Hold hands, be it literally or metaphorically. Hmm. There's so much in that story that that I find beautiful, and I want to explore it with you. But but the word prayer really jumps out to me here because that's another word, kind of like chaplain. We, we think of prayer as being a, directed towards God, or I mean, that's how it's been used traditionally. That that it's interwoven mm-hmm. with concepts of faith and. I'd love for you just to tell us what you think a prayer is. Like, what are you praying to in that case? How does it function? I, I look at prayer as bringing attention to intention. It's verbalizing something. It's verbalizing a communal feeling. I don't look at prayers as uh, wishes. You know, typically in the hospital setting if you were to to ask would you like a would you like to pray about something and if they say yes then the next step would be like well what would you like to pray about and almost to a person people always say they would like to pray for their health and they would like to pray for their family those two things and so so the magic in that it's not supernatural magic but what it is 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 they're telling you what they're what they what they want to bring attention to so then you can set it in intention so you um you begin the prayer and again like i was super nervous mm. and insecure about about praying um for the same reasons that that, that you just articulated because it felt uh inauthentic to to what i believed in but if i could frame it in a way that is that is genuine for them and them being the patient or the, the care seeker and genuine for me, it's, it's incredibly powerful um, if, if done correctly. And I would invoke whatever made the most sense. You know, when I was with Phil, um, who did not believe, I invoked the, the spirit and the power of our humanity mm-hmm. into a space. And so it's really about bringing bringing energy into to a, a space and then saying what what is reaffirming um in in that moment and then the more i got at Bell, bellevue in particular the more i i was okay with the idea of of praying then then the more i i saw the value now comma i think there is a lot of if not harm, there's a there's a lot of slipperiness when it comes to this idea of, of prayer. One being, um, people just don't know what else to to say. Meaning, like, my thoughts and prayers are with you, as as we sort of say nationally when a crisis 
happens. Um, and then particularly in a hospital setting, when there's an association with praying for a, a desired medical outcome, and then that gets associated with, with if one is, is, is still sick, that is a result of them not having strong enough faith or their prayers weren't valuable enough. Um, and then if they're not answered, then it being said that it's, it is God's will that, you know, this person fill in the blank. So I, I think that that is harmful, but when you potentially harmful, but when you, when you use it to just in, invoke attention to an intention, I think it's quite a powerful, powerful tool. Mm. No, that's, I think, very nicely said. And the, the other words that I, that I want to sit with here are, are, say, belief versus mystery. Because when somebody hears that, you know, you're an atheist chaplain, it, we then have a whole set of associations with atheism, which is, oh, do you believe in nothing? Right? Like, is, is it all just mystery? Is it all unknown? Um, but my sense is that your thinking goes quite a bit deeper than that, and that, um, that there is mystery, but there is belief. But let, I'll allow you to, to put words to that. How, how, do you, how do you sort through those questions? Yeah, I mean, atheists have the worst branding of, <laughs> my goodness. And so, you know, I, I, by the definition of the word, I am atheist. Um, by the definition of the word, Buddhists are atheist. Hmm. Uh, I don't get wrapped up in titles too much. However, I will say that I prefer to describe everything in my life by what I am for and not what I am not. Um, I try to make that a habit. And so that's why I use humanism. Hmm. And, and even when I began this journey, the question that uh, Chaplain Trudy Hirsch Abramson, the Zen Buddhist, that kind of set me out on the path. Um, when I when I said I don't believe in a god, her response is, "Well, then, what do you believe in?" And that's kind of been my my guiding north star as I continue to figure out what spirituality means. Yeah, but but I, I, I but I think that being okay with an ambiguous answer is part of the journey. And so, yeah, there's. There is mystery, and I think that the, there's beauty and there's awe and there's wonder in in the mystery, and not having to be specific about all of the rules that come with what you believe in, and and but also like you got to feel your way through it too. Like consciousness is amazing. The fact that we are living, thinking, breathing, loving creatures is a miracle. Hmm. Um, I I just I don't need to create a, a scaffolding of that miracle around things that happened 2,000, 5,000 years ago. And, and so I am okay with, I like to just use the word wrestle. I'm okay with like wrestling with, with where the, the dividing line is between belief and mystery, um, knowing and not knowing. I, I don't think these are ever easy answers, but I think that the, the in-between land is, is really where the fun and the magic is. Mm. Well, and I, I think of other really interesting guests we've had on this program, like like Christian Wyman, a poet, he's at Yale Divinity School, or others who, you know, I think on the most mystical terms, though, kind of equate mystery and God, 
or mystery and spirituality. And like he talks about the idea of kind of like living into mystery in a way. And do, do those words make sense? The idea that if there is a sense of divinity, that it is tied to mystery and that that's part of kind of maybe what some would say a, a more non-dual or mystical idea of religion anyway. I, yeah, that resonates a lot with me is I know that there's not nothing mm. and there is something because I can feel it. Uh, I'm just not compelled to create the story around it and, and let, yeah. And let the, the magic be in, in the mystery of it. And, but I, it also too, it's part of the tension is that I will spend the rest of my days searching for it while still the while knowing that I'm never going to find the answer. And again, that's that's part of the that's part of the it's part of the journey and part of the the fun of it. Yeah, I I also just wanted to circle back to one thing you said, which was, you know, the power of really being with someone in a moment of of true compassion and empathy. And it makes me think in my schooling of of psychology of of Carl Rogers, who is a humanist psychologist. That was the the school he founded. And it, the principles were, I think, very aligned with what you were saying about the notion that when you sit with someone in the spirit of empathy and listening and non-judgment, that is actually the healing function. Mm-hmm. It's right there. It's actually nothing much more. And, you know, it's not it's not going to be the medications or the cognitive behavioral therapy or the it's at that it's the relationship of the listening and the empathy in the room. And I feel that you're very much aligned with that. And again, I think of the tie, of course, with the word humanism, but I, I wonder if he's come across your plate. I'd imagine he has. Actually, I am, uh, I'm unfamiliar, but I have just taken notes. Hmm. Uh, and would love to learn more. <laughs> I'm glad but, I can add something yes. to your much longer reading list than I have. But, but I, I think either way, that philosophy would, would probably align with what you're talking about. 100%, 100%. You know, and he, he, you just said something too that, that is brought a smile to my face is that this the simplicity of it, mm. right? I think there is, we all want to be heard, I think is is kind of the, the crux of it all. And when you are, whether you're in a hospital bed or you're behind bars or you're a student and you don't know what you want to be when you grow up, um, just to have someone there not to give you advice not to tell you what you're doing right or doing wrong but just and and to do it very sincerely and just being like yeah i hear you that does suck yeah i hear you tell me more yeah i hear you you know uh, it is maybe i'm distilling it and reducing it too much but it really is a a simple act that goes a long long way to to healing You're listening to Life Examined on KCRW, and my guest this hour is Devin Moss, humanist chaplain, writer, and podcast host. Moss attended and counseled death row inmate Philip Hancock before his execution by the state of Oklahoma. Still to come, confronting death without God in a final prayer. That's all ahead on Life Examined. And a reminder that you can stay connected to the show on our Facebook group or connect with me directly on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion. We'll be back in a moment.
Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Chaplain Devin Moss talk about his role in providing spiritual comfort to those in need, and why he prefers to think of himself as a humanist rather than an atheist, and why he thinks there is magic and beauty that comes with not knowing and uncertainty. So how would Moss cope ministering to someone who, despite a deep knowledge of Scripture, utterly rejected his Christian faith? who, unlike Moss, believes there is no such thing as inherent good or evil. What comfort or prayer can Moss offer a man facing his own execution? Let's jump back in. I now want to talk about a story that I have read, some of our listeners have, that was incredibly moving, which was how you encountered a man named Philip Hancock, who was on death row uh, and who has passed away now. He He was executed. Can you tell us how Philip Hancock came into your life? Yeah, it was a little over a year ago. His attorney team reached out to the American Humanist Association because he was looking for a a non-theist chaplain because hmm. he had recently fired his his Christian chaplain. Oh. Um, and he did he didn't want to be proselytized to. He didn't want. The goal wasn't to save his soul, but he did want spiritual care, which I think is just a, a very interesting self-awareness on his part. And so the American Humanists Association reached out to their group of chaplains, and I rose, you know, I raised my hand and said, "I, I would love to do this." And yeah, then wrote Phil a letter. I got on the phone. This is, we started our conversations last February. Hmm. Tell us just about kind of where, where he was, even in the country, where you were, and you know what, what the beginning of this relationship was like. And if you could, just tell us about him a little bit too. Give us, paint us a little bit of a picture. Yeah. Um, so I was, I'm in New York City. I'm in Brooklyn. Phil is, is from Oklahoma City. He was in... Oklahoma State Penitentiary in McAllister, Oklahoma. Our relationship first started over phone calls. We'd have 20-minute calls. He would call me. Mm-hmm. So he, he had a, a tablet in his cell and, and would call at, I wouldn't say random times in the day, but it was sort of, I was, I was on call, <laughs> I think, every day, uh-huh. Uh-huh. every day. And he was a fascinating human, he was incredibly smart. He had the Bible practically memorized. Um, and I think he, you know, he struggled with faith. I think, I really do believe that he wanted to believe, but um, knowing what he had gone through his entire life, I can completely see w- why one in his position would not believe. Because, you know, talk about a, a hand of cards that just were hard to play, you know. And Phil was also a guy that when he was uncomfortable would try to make a joke and 
we had that in common. So some of our calls were just us cutting it up. He was deeply philosophical. Um, we would wrestle with ideas of like, are humans inherently good? I, I will say one thing too, in, in sort of in reference to the New York Times article that came out, and you know, the headline was atheist chaplain and it, put both Phil and I together as our, our common interest is, is being atheist, atheism. And technically that I guess is true, but I will say that, that I think what makes it even more nuanced and more compelling of a relationship is that Phil identified as a rational nihilist and I identified as a humanist. And so on both of those spectrums, I do, do believe that in all of us, there is, uh, the potential to to be and do good beyond ourselves. And Phil believes that it's all made up and that there is no such thing as inherent good or evil. Hmm. Um, and so we just have to make meaning. And so I think that was our struggle was, I believed at the end of the day that the good will win. And, and that to me often times feels the most naive and the biggest leap of faith uh, in the face of, of, of the world uh, in which we live. And so that led to amazing existential conversations. And uh, he knew scripture well enough where he could like just drop in some, you know, drop in some scripture that, that he actually loved to do when, when, when the volunteers at the at the prison would come in and preach to him, and again, it's all about saving souls there, mm. and he loved to get into these debates, oftentimes scaring them away. And you know, I I, I think Phil can wouldn't be offended if I said that, you know, I think his his intellect and sometimes the way in which he spoke could be quite intimidating, and and so what he was looking for was uh, a chaplain to to wrestle with ideas and ultimately to to be there and so our you know our bond grew i did my first in person visit that july july of last year and then in october i subletted my place here in brooklyn and and airbnb to place in oklahoma city so that i could go to, to the prison every every Friday and and do our visits and go to the clemency hearings and just to be just to be closer as wow. the, as the execution date approached how did it feel for you to to be with someone I mean kind of you know irregardless of how you or we feel about the criminal justice system this was a person convicted of, of a double murder right um, and Clearly, I'm sure he was wrestling with that, even if I know in the article he he thought of himself as innocent or acting out of self-defense. But I, what was it like for you to know that you were sitting with somebody who, however you or we feel about it, had some role to play in this, but was also literally counting down the days of his life, and which I, I know begs incredible questions. I mean just from your side, the way you were kind of sitting with this stuff, what, what was coming up in you? Quite a, quite a bit, you know, it is hard. I think one of the, the questions uh, that really indexes on, on what does humanism mean to me is 
who deserves compassion and does that compassion cup you know is it an unlimited 64 ounce cup of compassion this didn't start at the moment of of where those killings happened right you to know phil's story is to know phil at three years old and to know phil at five years old and mm. to to understand his life path and to to find ways of compassion um into that and so you know he he was not a perfect human he did have a lot of things that went bad for him early and and consistently happened throughout his life he made a ton of bad choices and there are like you know generally there are monsters among us and there are people that are incredibly violent that should be incarcerated for the rest of their lives frankly and and so as a as a chaplain i had to wrestle with that too is is what is what is that threshold? Um, when do we give up on somebody? And the the answer that I that I came to is that you know there has there has to be a gravitational force towards goodness, and that sounds really righteous as I hear it coming out of my mouth. But but there has to be some gravitational force to goodness that will have an effect. And I just had this thought, which I've never said publicly before is that when I was in uh, the execution chamber and after the execution was presumably complete, I had a spontaneous prayer where I, I prayed to the divine. Um, again, not premeditated. It just kind of entered my body and came out of my mouth. And I had this thought, or at least the premise of the prayer was, is like, if there is a next life, my my prayer is, is for Phil to have something to believe in. And then it wasn't like a hedging bet just in case there was a heaven. It was like we have a responsibility, almost like a, a karmic responsibility. I guess that's where I, where I was kind of left is like we have a karmic responsibility to help someone transition in a way that's, that is different and better than when they came in. And at minimum, for for all of the the ones that we execute, the people, the humans that we execute, I think that is the bare minimum that we can offer them is to be like, hey, we're it's 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 so surreal to actually have these this sentence come out of my my mouth. But if if we are going to execute somebody, we need to do it in in such a way that. It, it gravitates to, to goodness. Mm. And I understand the incredible hypocrisy of what I just said, but but he but the week leading up to, to the execution, his his week on death watch, every opportunity to reaffirm his mistrust and disdain for humanity was underscored. And it, it was heartbreaking was to say the least. And so I I yeah, I, I think we just we just owe it to them, no matter no matter what they did. I think no matter what they did. The image that was coming to my mind a little bit here was that 
for a lot of people that that commit, you know, atrocious crimes, we we can also kind of understand how unhealthy the environment they grew up in was. Mm-hmm. That what I almost hear you saying is that some people and okay, they're culpable, but we have to understand that they maybe were given a, a really rough introduction to this world. And in a way, what you're saying is in those last moments or weeks or months, they deserve maybe some kind of hope on the way out or, yeah. or yeah. A, a prayer on the way out. Um, like that, that to me is a very kind of provocative and um, a very rich idea and subject, I guess. Yeah. And, and, and the system just does is isn't built that way and and does not see it in the same way. Hmm. There's a very famous phrase, which is that there's there's no atheist in a foxhole. I know this is one that you you have probably <laughs> pondered in this process, but I'm imagining you and Phil having these conversations. And what I'm hearing is that in this foxhole there really was an atheist that that as much as Phil was trying to look for a divine answer to save his soul or to arise out of this, there wasn't one. And I, I guess I find that very kind of very important to talk about. Yeah. So there were, there were, I guess there were two atheists in a fo- foxhole. Yeah. Um, and like, listen, I, you know, I, I wasn't in world war two, but I, but I was in the Marine Corps and I would also counter mm-hmm. that expression with, when you're in acute moments of crisis in a military setting, it is still about the other person. You would be amazed about how much you th- just think of someone else's well-being, and and so I, I I'm gonna recoin my own phrase mm-hmm. <laughs> to counter that because I don't I don't believe that's I don't believe that's true. And, and there was something about the that experience, particularly in the final moments in the transition with with Phil, is that neither of us felt that we needed that either. And, you know, I, I will say that, that Phil died with incredible dignity. He transitioned in, in relative peace. And, you know, he, he would call it peaceful oblivion. He would call death peaceful oblivion. And that was powerful and enough for him. And in, you know, in the moments, I just made sure that he knew that he was loved and that he was not alone. And, and that is what is important. And so I, I don't find that what happens next um, in order to make that transition go more smoothly, I don't think that's the right framework to look at it. I, I think it is, it is specifically that moment of transition where you need to you need to to, to work and, and find your peace and and hopefully uh, you will be surrounded by people to to echo and to support you in that way could you say a little bit more about let's say that that final week of being with him or days because i mean this is just a situation that most of us will never quite encounter. I mean, this is a planned death execution. You know, death, 
I think for most of us, arrives kind of at its own mysterious timetable, whether it's a parent or a friend or even ourselves. But like, how was it to be with him literally counting down hours and days? Yeah, that, um, I, I'm still quite angry for lack of a, a better word. And, mm. and on the, the death certificate, it says homicide. So I also have no problem with calling it, you know, murder. Right. Murdered by the state, essentially. Murdered, yeah. murdered by the state. Mm-hmm. Um, so a week before, well, I think it's important to know too, that 21 days before a scheduled execution is uh, their opportunity to have a clemency hearing. And in, in, I'm talking the state of Oklahoma here. Mm-hmm. And so Phil had his clemency hearing. His attorneys did an amazing job. Um, and the clemency board, which is made up of five men, voted three uh, to two to to recommend clemency. And so what happens then is then it goes to the governor's desk. If if the clemency board did not vote for clemency, for recommended clemency, the governor wouldn't wouldn't make his desk, and and the execution would go on as as scheduled. So. So what that does is it, and rightfully so, it introduces real hope into um, a, a commutation mm. right, of, of some sort, and it, and that is still to be determined depending on the case whether it's life in prison. You know, there's also pardons on the table at that point. Um, and so, and clemency is is just they call it the the backstop, the last failsafe. It it is to grant mercy by by the institution in this case the governor so anyway so so we're there's the attorneys are are feeling optimistic and and Phil is feeling optimistic and and his case really has a lot of credible evidence that it was self defense um a lot of cre- credible evidence and so each like week would would go on and at any point the governor can grant clemency right so the, the governor has 21 days all the way up from the moment the the board recommends it till the one minute before the execution happens the governor can say stop the rule i i'm going to grant clemency mm-hmm. um so it doesn't happen we're seven days now before the execution, and it and it normally doesn't happen until at least the with this governor of Oklahoma, um, it doesn't happen until like the day before the execution. So that, well, that's a lot of time to be sweating Jeez. things out. Yeah, yeah. And um, so at, at seven days prior to the execution, they move uh, the incarcerated into what they call death watch. Death watch is the new name for suicide watch. It's to make sure that. Um, the person does not take their own life. And and mind you, although Phil did live behind bars, he was you know, in H unit in Oklahoma State Penitentiary for many, many, many years. So he had his own mattress. So his cell was his home and, and, he, and he made it such. And so to be extracted from where you've nested uh, to a, a new cell, so he lost his mattress that he bought himself he lost his pillows he had new clothes that hadn't been washed and so you he was itching and then they keep the lights on 24 hours a day Mm. 
And it just so happened that that Thanksgiving was the day was the seventh day prior. So it's the 23rd of November. His execution date is scheduled for the 30th. And so they move him out of his his cell on Thanksgiving Day. He doesn't now get his normal holiday visit or holiday meal, which is just kind of an extra kick to the to the kneecap. Um and then and then of course everybody gets takes that Friday off. So his attorneys are off, the the, the prison staff is off. You know, uh, I make uh, myself available. Uh, and I, yeah, I think I went for a, a visit that Friday. But even that, his sort of his, his routine is, is disrupted. And so he doesn't really get to talk to his attorneys again that Monday. And so now he's really got, uh, got three days left. That's, that's one. He, he warrants five witnesses um, to witness the execution. He had designated one of his childhood friends to come and watch. Hmm. They, they didn't tell him until that Monday that his friend uh, had been disqualified because for a reason that also didn't make much sense. And I was actually with Phil 35 days prior, so 35 days prior is when they fill out all this paperwork where they write down what they want their last meal to be. And he had written, I was there when he created the list. Um, there was ample time for the administration of the Department of Corrections to f let everybody know what needed to be done to get his childhood friend in to, to come and witness. So then that's Monday before the execution. He's told that his friend can't come, um, which is heartbreaking i've been fighting this entire time to get a one-on-one -on -one spiritual care meeting with him another thing about the oklahoma state uh, corrections is they do not allow for privileged spiritual care meetings hmm. so i would i would visit phil other states do um and and it, this also does not protect our phone calls so our phone calls were recorded and were given to the to the attorney general as well. The attorney's phone calls are privileged, and any any conversations with a psychologist of of any sort are also protected. Spiritual care not protected. Hmm. Anyway, and so along with that, I wasn't able to get a, a one on one visit until I had to broker a deal to get in there the Tuesday before that Thursday. So it was my first one on one alone conversation in person with Phil. And then the the thing that one of the things that, that really sticks with the mo with me the most too is that Wednesday is around between the hours of 5 and 7 is when he would get his last meal. And so I went for a visit um that Wednesday a 4-hour visit and all we really talked about was how much he was looking forward to this big bucket of dark original recipe um, Kentucky Fried Chicken. And uh, again, we're having a nice cut up about it. We're all just, our mouths were watering about what this would be like. And and then come to find out the next morning is that they had just, instead of giving him what he had asked for, and mind you, they have a, they have a $25 budget and a five mile radius. So when, when we think of like last meals, it just can't be anything. Yeah. And when you're in McAllister, Oklahoma, um, you don't have too many options, right? Mm -hmm. 
And so they gave him a, like a 10 piece chicken strip that was, that was dried out. And, and just to mess up his last meal, it's just, it's, it's just so heartbreaking because it, it doesn't take much. It just doesn't take much to, to display uh, thoughtfulness. And I was, you know, I'm still wrestling of, of whether that's, that's malice or whether it's incompetence or whether it's just people, you know, doing the bare minimum. Um, and then that was the night before. And then the morning of there was a, there was almost an hour and a half delay. And so Phil was strapped to the gurney for an extra hour plus before the execution happened. And, and so, yeah, there's just day by day, moment by moment, there just seemed to be just missed opportunities to, to show a bit of humanity. I was really moved by a, a prayer that you had written that if I have this right, you read in, in these final hours to him when you were with him. Um, it begins with, we call the spirit of humanity. Do you by any chance have that near you that you could read? Uh, I found it quite a beautiful little piece of writing. So I wrote this uh, the morning of, partly because I was hoping not to need to have written it. And I was waiting till the last minute. One of the, one of the things that he had asked early on when I, when I was frustrated and, and just wanting to know from him what he wanted from me, and, and he referenced Philippians uh, chapter 4, verses uh, 7 and 8. Uh, the interpretation that I've read of, of that verse doesn't square with what he said it meant, but it didn't matter what he said it meant is, is what I went off of. And it was, show me something real, show me something true. And so that was the framework of, of really my whole journey of, of figuring out how I could provide him spiritual care. And so that was the, the, the context of, for, for writing this. And uh, this was actually in the execution chamber. Although Phil didn't like prayer, um, I wanted to ground the space as quickly as I could. And so once I was escorted and entered the execution chamber, there was a corrections officer there and there was the d director of operations who was managing the execution. And so it was us three and, and Phil strapped to the gurney. And so I, I read this immediately upon entering. I call the spirit of humanity into the space. Let love fill our hearts. We ask that in this transition into peaceful oblivion, that Phil feels that love. And although that this is his journey, that he is not alone. We invoke the power of peace, strength, grace, and surrender. Amen. And Devin, I, I'm wondering how all of this has made you reflect on capital punishment, you know, which remains this this really big debate, a very thorny one. And, you know, you were there to witness it firsthand and to see the people involved. It's like, 
How did you begin to feel about that process after this experience? You know, it's interesting because when I when I came into it uh, a year ago, I was I don't know if I was on the fence, but I was a little bit murky about how I felt about capital punishment. Um, where I was was so long as innocent people are, are being executed, I'm against it. But I also, you know, believe that those that do harm for children deserve to be executed. And and where I've grown just from being in it is. Or, or what I was exposed to that I, that I don't think a lot of people get an opportunity to think about is is the externalities of who this affects, who state executions affect. So it's not the politicians and it's not the the judges and it's not the juries per se. It's there are people that have to go in and they have to to do all these things and nobody um, that that does this. There was somebody that told me this early on is like, actually nobody that has a hand in, in these executions wants to do it. And they're the ones that go home to their wives and have to not talk about this, you know? And, and a lot of these, these, these people, they're corrections officers. This is the only job in the small town that they live in. And they've, they've done like 12 and they can't say anything to anybody about it because it's supposed to be like a secret job. And so just that alone about, about the ripple effect of capital punishment, it's not just the state coming down with a sentence on one person who, who created or committed a heinous crime. Uh, the ripple effect of, of trauma is real. Um, I have been touched by it and there are many, many people that don't have an opportunity to speak that are also touched by it. How have you been since his execution? How have you been with emotional trauma here? I mean, you mentioned that everybody experiences some level of PTSD if you're part of an execution. And so I'm just kind of checking in with you in these months after and, and what you have been through now, you know, following what's happened. You know, I'm, I'm processing it. It changes. It looks different. Uh, I, I was angry for the longest time. And like, listen, it was, you know, there was a, a definite routine of hmm. speaking with someone every day and, and being there and, and, uh, you know, that was, that was the central part of my life for, for a long time. And then it just abruptly ends. And so that is, uh, that is a, a shift that makes you have to look at what happened. I do, I do find a bit of peace in our, in our journey and in those last moments, um, I, I, you know, and maybe this is just my retelling of the of what happened, but it it in some ways it does feel like that he was able to Phil was able to 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 transition peacefully 
And that was almost a um, middle finger in some ways to his executioners. And so what, what I spend the most time processing and, and what I feel emotionally is surprisingly the things that happened outside of our last seven minutes together. Um, the stuff immediately thereafter, the politics, uh, the laws, the system itself, and countless displays of of being inhumane is is what I still process the the most. And and you know one of my one of my outlets is I, I am making a, a podcast about the experience, mm. and so that allows me to. Um, to process as as I go along, um, in each each phase. Well, as we kind of close our time together with this conversation, I I'm wondering if there's anything else you would want us to know about Phil. Anything else you would want us to know about that experience and how it changed you that you feel still you're lingering on, or that you would want to tell us before we say goodbye? Phil was a, a complex human, as we all, I think, are, are very complex humans. He was not a monster. He acted in what he thought was his only choice. And so for that, um, it is easy for me to find compassion that's that's what i would say hmm. we had one person in our community on facebook wanted to ask they said that devin and many like him are able to hold grace for those in pain how have they managed their minds to move through those minutes and hours and i guess you've answered that a little bit but if there was anything else that came up it, uh, you know when i when i when things become clear and i and i talk to people about this experience, it, it seems that all of the all of the, the work I did with Phil that 10 months prior, all of the work that I did at Bellevue for those six months, all of my time in the Marine Corps for those five years and all of my childhood, it does seem that that everything that I had learned was needed in that you know, in that 15 minutes in the execution chamber. Mm. I was wildly insecure most of the time of being with Phil, that I was actually helping him in, in any way. And and so, yeah, it's just, it's this weird feeling of, like it took everything that I had learned my entire life to maintain poise and to deliver the message that I delivered to Phil. And, and I'm not saying that to say that I'm a, a unique and special in any way, but, but I guess maybe what I'm saying is that it took a lot of work, but in that moment, it, it felt natural yet. It's also not scalable. Like I, 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 actually honestly don't know if if I would do this again in, in the future. And it's yeah, and it's it's 
hard work, but I think it's it's worthwhile work. Well, it's been such a such a pleasure to be joined by Devin Moss. He's a chaplain, writer, host of the Adventures of Memento Mori podcast, and attended and counseled death row inmate Philip Hancock before his execution by the state of Oklahoma. Uh, I, I'm so grateful that we could speak to you about this uh, and for all the places you took us in this conversation. I, I, I really appreciate the time. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening to this week's conversation with Chaplain Devin Moss. This week's show was brought to our attention by Katie M. from our Facebook community. So thank you, Katie, and a reminder to join our community and send us the ideas you have. We'd also love to get your reactions to this show. What came up for you as you were listening? You can find a link to that at kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. Or you can contact me directly on Instagram. I'm at Jonathan W. Bastion. You're listening to Life Examined on KCRW. Thanks as always for joining us. Take care, and we'll see you soon.